Well, this morning we come to the last of four messages on church discipline from Matthew 18. Of course, we've seen that in the midst of all of this, these verses we've been working through, verses 15, 16, and 17, are part of a greater context pertaining to Christ's love for his sheep, for his little ones. All the way through chapter 18, as we have seen, we've seen the Lord's love for his people as well as his desire to protect them from stumbling into sin, as well as uh, protecting them from the influence of others or of even themselves. His desire, we've seen, is that he would seek and save that which has been lost. But part of this recovery involves stopping and chastening sinning believers before they ruin themselves and fall altogether. And this is the work of church discipline. But it's more than simply keeping us from train wrecking ourselves. The Lord does have a greater desire. The desire is for a pure church. All throughout the scriptures, we see this command to be holy. We are called to be holy. What does it mean to be holy? Well, first of all, it means to be set apart for God's purposes. Set apart for God's purposes. We are meant to be a unique people. We are called even strangers and aliens in the world. We are set apart from the world. We're meant to be different. If we look just like the world, we're doing it wrong. We're called to be different, set apart. And while the world plunges themselves headlong into sin, we strive to keep ourself, uh, ourselves away from the sins of the world, and so we are set apart. But also, secondly, being holy means purity. Not just separate and set apart, but also pure. It means that we don't defile ourselves with the filth of sin. We desire spiritual and moral purity. And thirdly, being holy also means living higher, above the base things of the world, living a transcendent life. Our sins often have us feeling like we're crawling around in the dirt, but holiness lifts our gaze to heaven, and we are called to live exalted lives that are pleasing to the Lord God. Now, we know that purity and holiness do not originate from within ourselves. That was the error of the holiness movement of the early uh, 19th and 20th century, was that somehow we could attain holiness unto ourselves. But we know that we are racked with sin and shame of the shame of that sin. 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 11 exhorts believers and instructs us that we are not to be deceived. Don't, cons- don't deceive yourself. But the Bible says neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, and I would even add to revilers, slanderers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. These are the kinds of sins, among others, that warrant church discipline. This is what we're talking about when we talk about church discipline and and being turned away from these kinds of besetting sins, the sins that defile you and destroy you. But then we read in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. We're not talking about sins that are somehow out there that don't apply. These are things in many cases that we have struggled with in the past or do struggle with even in current Such were some of you. But then he tells the church, but you were washed. 
you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In other words, He cleanses us. He makes us holy. Because all of us, that in some regard is our former life. And we don't all struggle with the same sins at the same level. All of us are different. Many of us, we all have a different propensity to sin in certain ways. But the bottom line is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it is God who washes and sanctifies and justifies us in Christ Jesus. And since he sanctifies us positionally in terms of relationship with us and God, even though he sanctifies us positionally, we are called to join with him in pursuing sanctification progressively as we live and as we walk. For we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. In other words, don't practice the same sins that you used to practice before you were saved. Don't just assume, okay, I've got my Jesus card. I'm going to just go right back to who I used to be. It doesn't work like that. Rather, he says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God desires a pure and holy church. Why? Because he himself is pure and holy. And what fellowship does light have with darkness? The answer, none. But beloved, we are not darkness. We are light, the Bible says, in the Lord. So therefore, we are to walk in the light. But what happens if a believer falls into sin and does not walk in the light? That's what Jesus is helping us to understand in our text today. And so if you haven't already turned there, turn to Matthew chapter 18 in your copy of Scripture the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Again, we have spent several weeks working through verses 15 through 17, and I've devoted one message per step of church discipline because, frankly, I don't think that this text, number one, being so misunderstood and misapplied, uh, warrants just a a very quick Passover. I think the Bible itself warrants us to examine and study out because what do we do when we fall into errors and sins like this where we need to be disciplined out of them. And so I want to make sure that we have this in our minds and lodged in our hearts before we go too fast over it. We've spent several weeks working through these verses, and as we've seen, not only is there a lot bound up in these verses, but there is much that touches these verses. It's not just verse 15, 16, 17. It has tendrils that reach out and grab and touch other things in the Bible. These verses have many arms that touch other passages, other doctrines even. And we've seen this applies to church membership. It applies to church leadership and eldership. It involves uh, confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. There's so much that's attached to just these couple of verses. There's so much here we can't just speed through. And while some have seen Matthew 18, 15 through 17 as only a series of steps towards church discipline, we have seen that these verses are built on the foundation of verses 1 through 14. There's 14 verses behind these, and therefore are rooted in the very heart of Christ. 
Again, the Lord's desire in verse 11 is to save that which was lost. His heart is redemption and therefore reconciliation. This isn't just a matter of kicking sinners out of the church. That is not the method and means and ends of church discipline. Rather, this is about redemption and restoration. Verse 14, it is not the will of God the Father that any of his little ones perish. We don't do this because we're trying to remove and cast away people. We're doing this in this way because we want to preserve and rescue straying sheep. Very different perception of these verses than is often practiced in some churches. And yet there are times when Christian believers commit sins, which is essentially straying from the truth, or there are times when they wander off, which is straying from God and from his people. And when that happens, we, the church, are charged with the blessing and the task of going after them to bring them back. And so Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, we noted here that these verses put forth a series of steps by which the church can restore sinning believers. And I'm just to do a very brief recap and to, to get a fuller picture, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous couple messages if you want to get a running start here. But the first step of church discipline comes in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Of course, we understand that this verse is not applying to disputes with unbelievers. He says, if your brother, and by virtue of that, your sister, all members of the body of Christ, this is referring to Christians, to one another here. He says, if your brother sins, whether against you or against anyone else in the church in general or against God, and I'm not talking about a minor offense because we've seen even in that sermon that there are places in Scripture where it encourages us to overlook some transgressions. If there's a way to overlook a minor offense and not go after them and fault find and be a troublesome meddler, if there's ways to do that in godliness and in a good conscience, then we should do that. Love covers a multitude of sins. However, we also see that there are sins that are persistent and egregious and destructive. Sins that can't just be dealt with very quickly. Oh, I apologize for saying that. That was, oh, I, I sinned against you. I'm sorry. Let's move on. I'm not talking about that kind of a thing. I'm talking about the things that ruin the sinner. Jesus says if that happens, go and show him his fault in private. This is not the time to sit on your hands and let them bury themselves in their own sins. It is also not the opportunity to share those sins and those problems with other people. And we talked about this several weeks here that any time you share negative details about someone to someone else who's not connected at all to the process of church discipline, whenever you share negative things about other people, you're participating in gossip. And God hates gossip. 
Scripture over and over again warns against it. And even to go further than that, if you share those details for the purpose of painting them in a negative light, that's slander. So gossip, oh, I didn't mean to tear them down. Well, yes, but even if you share these things with other people that have no connection at all, that's gossip. The Lord hates it. He calls it malicious. And Scripture often offers severe warnings against gossip and slander. And so we are not to do that, but rather we ourselves are to go to our brother or sister, and the Bible says, tell them their fault in private, one-on-one, privately, humbly, gently, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, if any of you are spiritual, he says, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You don't go in with guns blazing, I got a bone to pick with you. That's not how we go to our sinning brothers and sisters. We go to them humbly, gently, godly, prayerfully. Tell them their sin, call them to repentance. He says, Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother and the matter is over. You don't proceed down the ladder of church discipline. If they repent and say, please forgive me, they go to the Lord, Lord, please forgive me, amen. All right, we can bring you back and you're restored and let's keep on going. Ultimately, that's what we want. We want to see our brother or sister reconciled and restored with as few people involved as possible. We don't want dirty laundry floating around the church. That's not the purpose. We want repentance to be as easy for them to do as possible. Not because sin is not egregious to God, but because we want to extend the heart of Christ, the heart that is gentle and lowly and wants to receive sinners and have them restored. We want that too. We want to bring them back lovingly, gently, as, much as, as easily as possible. But there are times when confronting them one-on-one doesn't work. They resist, they harden their hearts, which is why Jesus offers a second step, verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If you do not have success in leading them to repentance, Jesus tells you to reach out for help. Now again, this does not bring you to the point where you can start dishing dirt. You don't say, okay, now I can gossip. That's not the point of step two. Now you have to take a small, intimate group, one or two more with you. You want to bring those who are the most godly, the most charitable, the most discreet, the most objective, trustworthy people you can find. You want to find those who are above reproach and you go to them uh, timidly, gently. You don't want to overshare and just give them the whole thing because they haven't even agreed to it yet. But you set the scenario, you say, here's the situation. Could you possibly help with that? And they pray about it. Yes, I I can help with that. All right. All right, I'm 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 prepared to go with you. Okay, who are we talking about now? Okay, it's them. All right, well, let's, let's pray and let's go. You do it the right way. Once they agree to go, then you go. And why do you bring them with you? Well, to verify the truth. To verify the truth, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 19.15, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is about truth. We want this to be as plain and verified as possible so that when they see that there's no excuse, that they are caught in sin. It's not just your opinion. Another person has come along and verified, yeah, brother, sister, this is sin. This isn't, they're not just picking on you. This really is sin. And you need to repent. 
and be restored. And so at that point, you're giving them no excuse for not repenting. However, there is still a chance that they could harden their hearts even further and not repent. And so what do you do then? Verse 17, we saw this last week. If he refuses to listen to them, to you and to the witnesses, then tell it to the church. At this point, you've made a large leap from step two to step three, from private now to public. And now you're intensifying the pressure. You're intensifying those who, uh, the, the, the situation of those who know. This happens only if they refuse to listen to the small group of godly witnesses. Again, this is on them. They have hardened their hearts and they have refused, made the decision to refuse to listen. They've had meetings, they've hashed it out, but they're just not budging. They've hardened their hearts. At this point, you bring it before the church, which on a practical level means you notify the elders first. It does not mean you stand up in a congregational meeting and say, here's the deal, and just blast the entire church. No, you need to have some order to this. You need to have some leadership. And frankly, folks, you want some spiritual covering. Because what if you're wrong? And so you bring it to the elders of the church. I think sometimes, it's just letting you know, I think sometimes we jump some of these steps. And frankly, I hear about things probably a lot sooner than I should as a pastor. So much of this can be dealt with just person to person, and I would even encourage you, settle your differences quietly, interpersonally, as much as you possibly can. Because once you start bringing in other people, and once you start bringing in the leadership and the church, you're escalating this to a higher level, and especially if they have not yet hardened their heart, they will when you elevate it to something it doesn't need to be. So be very careful. This is pastoral. Be very careful. If you can settle your disagreements, if you can point out sins in the right heart with the right method uh, privately, please do so. It'll bless them. It'll bless you. It'll bless the church. But if you have to bring it to the church, you have to bring it to the leaders, we might try. The leaders might try to reason with that person and talk to them directly. Sometimes if the, the elders of the church show up at your house and say, we have to talk to you, Sometimes that's enough. However, if they can't get anywhere, if there's no budging at all, then at that point we do have to notify the general assembly of believers. It is the responsibility then for the whole church to go after the sinning brother or sister and call them to repentance. They are to do, again, all of this earnestly, gently, lovingly, because they're the last step. The church is the last step. At this point, the entire congregation goes on a rescue mission to bring back the lost sheep. I know you've watched the news before, and you see that maybe a small child goes missing in the woods, and what do they do? They call a search party, and you see the helicopter camera shot of dozens and dozens and possibly hundreds of people fanning out and sweeping through everywhere they can possibly go to find that one child, and they don't stop until they find them. That's the idea here. We go after the lost and straying sheep. And what is the goal? The goal, because you don't just do it to no end, the goal is repentance leading to reconciliation and then restoration. The goal is to get them back and bring them back 
in love so they can work themselves back into the assembly without looking over their shoulder at anybody staring at them. No, the goal is complete restoration so that we are back in regular fellowship and loving participation in their life. And if that's what you would want for yourself, if you were to fall into sin, then consider what you would want for your brother or sister. So this is This is very serious, but it's also a great joy if we can do this well. But what if our efforts fail? What do you do if the brother in Christ, if the sister in Christ, simply will not listen? They won't have it. They're just done. The end of verse 17. If he refuses to listen, even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This, beloved, is the final step. This only occurs, I want to emphasize strongly, this only occurs if he refuses to listen even to the church. I've seen this step done again way too early. A person's caught in a transgression, and instead of working the process of trying to restore them, their name is brought up before the entire assembly, and they say, you're not to have any more fellowship with this person, they're gone. And they boot them out before the church has had an opportunity to go after them. That's wrong. Jesus says in verse 17 that we are to go to them, to tell it to the church so that we can rescue them. That's a vital step that I've seen missed a lot in churches. So we can't afford to do that wrong. But if we've done everything that we possibly can, if they're determined to go to hell with our arms wrapped around their legs as they go, that's on them at that point. But at least we've grabbed onto their feet to hold them back. But if they refuse to listen even to the church. In this word refuse in the Greek here originally, uh, parakuo refers to a stubborn refusal or a rejection. They've said, you know what, Harvest Bible Church, we're done here. We're done. We, we don't even, you know what, we're sick of you guys calling us and harassing us. We, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And they've just had it. If they simply will not listen to reason by their lone brother or sister in Christ, who comes to them in love, or by a small group of believers who come to them in love, or even to the entire congregation which they belong to, then they have stiff-armed the church. And by doing that, they have turned away from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So what do you do if they reject the church? What do you do? The answer to that is, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? Because we don't have Gentiles in this way anymore, right? We have tax collectors, but we don't. They're called something different these days. What does this mean? Well, you have to remember, again, the context here. This is, Jesus is speaking here to a Jewish audience. Jesus himself is of Jewish descent. He's speaking to other Jews in the, in the area. And culturally, the Jews despised all non-Jews. So if you were, all non-Jews are called Gentiles, okay? And even the Samaritans were part Jewish and part Gentile, and so they were considered a spiritual half-breed, and the Jews didn't like them either. So if you were a non-Jew, you're a Gentile, and Jews have 
no purpose, no, no time at all. They wouldn't cross the street to spit on a Gentile. That's their level of derision toward the Gentile people. But why did they despise them? Why? Well, because generally Gentiles committed atrocious sins. They were idolaters. They were oftentimes adulterers and immoral. They were, they were pagans in their behavior. They, they practiced detestable things. In many cultures, even practiced child sacrifice. I mean, they did things that were just plain awful. And even if you had a Gentile who didn't do all of those things, the Jews were still accustomed to despising them because they were clearly outside the people of God. It was very clear that we worship God, Yahweh, Jehovah, and they do not. They worship a false god. They worship Satan. And so Gentiles were unconverted pagans and not part of God's people. They were outside the congregation of the people of God. What about tax collectors? Well, generally, tax collectors in Israel were Jewish citizens who had sold out to the Romans for the purpose of extorting money from their own people. So they were essentially traitors. They were enemies of their own people. They were egregious sinners. They represented the worst of sinners. So prostitutes, And tax collectors, that's about as bad as you got in the eyes of the Jewish people. So when Jesus is telling them this, he's he's telling them to regard them as a Gentile or a tax collector. He's not not uh, playing into the Jewish bias against them. That's not what he's doing. He's not stoking the fire against tax collectors or against Gentiles. Well, how do we know this? Well, because we know that he intends to extend the gospel to Gentiles. That's why they were so shocked when they actually started to receive Gentiles into the church. What do you mean? We were always told to to hate these people. And Jesus is saying, no, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I'm going to bring them also, John chapter 10, right? That's why after Pentecost, when the disciples were going out, it was such a huge issue because we're not used to loving these people. We're used to despising these people. So Jesus is intending to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. What about tax collectors? Uh, Who wrote this gospel? Matthew. What did Matthew do before he came to Christ? He was a tax collector. So clearly Jesus is not playing into the bias. Rather, what he's doing is he's appealing to their general regard for unbelievers and for sinners. He's essentially saying, you know how you regard Gentiles being outside the faith? You know how you regard tax collectors being egregious sinners? I want you to think about that imagery when you consider what we are to do with those who have rejected the people of God. Of course, now, he also intends to send the disciples out to evangelize all those people, sinners and Gentiles, but he's speaking to them right now in terms that they can understand. When a person rejects the discipline of Christ's church, They are rendering themselves to be grave sinners like tax collectors. And when they are placing themselves outside of the people of God, they're acting like Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice something here, that Jesus never says that unrepentant sinners have ceased to be Christians anymore. He doesn't doesn't say that theologically, spiritually, in terms of they haven't walked back their regeneration. That's not what he says. He doesn't deem them to be then rooted back out of the faith. 
nor has he told the church that we have the authority to deem them to be unbelievers. Now, we're going to get into some of this when we get into next week's text, verses 18 through 20, because there is a level of identity and authority within the local church. But Jesus is not saying you are pronouncing them to be unbelievers, because in the end, only God knows who belongs to him. So Jesus is not sanctioning us to put people in the kingdom or take them back out of the kingdom. Rather, he says that we are to let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. We are to regard them in our minds as so. We are to treat them as unbelievers in how we deal with them moving forward. Do you see the difference here? He's not stating definitive reality. He's telling us how we are to operate. Operate under the assumption that they're no longer in the faith. Well, what if they are in the faith? Leave that to me. You are to treat them a certain way moving forward. Of course, it is entirely possible that all of this church discipline has removed them from the assembly because according to 1 John 2.19, they've gone, they've gone out from us because they were not really of us. They might have been removed from the church and all we've done is exposed a false convert and an apostate who doesn't even belong here to begin with. We, we go through the process. Every time we bring a new member, a church member, into the assembly, we don't determine whether they are Christians or not Christians. God does. But we're trying to treat people as though they are believers based on fruit of testimony in life. So we're doing everything that we can to try to determine are you actually a Christian? Again, by testimony, do you believe and affirm the gospel? And do you live your life according to the gospel? That's all we have to go on. God has your name written in the Lamb's book of life if you belong to him, but we regard you as believers, and we, we strive after regenerate church membership. You want people who are born again to be members of the body of Christ. Now, anyone is allowed to walk in and worship God together with us, but in terms of our affirmation of those who belong in this number, we have to know who you are. And so church discipline might be God's way of removing those who don't belong here. That's a very different thing altogether. That's a purging of those who do not belong and are now outside. Again, if a person is living in open rebellion to the Lord, they are giving evidence that they don't belong to him at all. If you stepped out of your marriage covenant and you're living with a man or woman that you're not married to and acting as though you are, and you thumb your nose at the church, you're living as though you're not a Christian. And frankly, you don't belong here as a Christian. But what is our behavior to be toward that person? Well, Romans 16, 17 instructs the church, this is in regards to those who make false professions and false teachers, but uh, the, the exhortation is keep your eye on them. The King James actually renders this, mark them. It's like putting a target on their back. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them. So mark them, keep your eye on them, turn away from them. Essentially, this is excommunication. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, an instance of a sinning brother who will not obey the Lord. In verse 6, he says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. 
Again, note, Paul is not referring to the sinning brother as an unbeliever. He calls him a brother. Yet he advocates for withdrawal of fellowship and functional excommunication. Or he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. There's a pattern that's being repeated here. Titus 3 Chapter 10 and 11, or verse 10 and 11, reject a factious man, a person who just stirs up dissension all the time in church. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. 1 Timothy 1.20, makes, Paul makes mention of two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have shipwrecked their faith, Paul says. And he tells Timothy, I have delivered over to Satan these men so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, I want to be very clear. These verses are not prescriptive. It's not to say in every single instance, do this or do that or do this. But I want you to hear there's a general practice here of those who have hardened their hearts against the Lord and against the gospel, those who are living their lives in a completely unruly way, those who do not submit to the authority of the church and to the authority of Christ, there's a pattern of behavior for those, the people of God against those people. We are to deal with them as sinning brothers. We're to deal with them as though they're apostates. And there's a very clear picture. We are to proceed as though they have rejected the Lord, and therefore we are to remove them reject them, and excommunicate them. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, it just doesn't seem right to kick people out of the church. I, I don't like that. That doesn't make me feel good. We're, I mean, after all, we're in an inclusive society, aren't we? That's not very tolerant. I don't like the idea of bringing someone's name before the entire church and then removing them. But let me remind you that when we get to that point in church discipline, the Christian has stubbornly committed to living in sin despite repeated admonitions from the church. They're the ones who've left. We're the ones who are here. We're the ones telling them, please come back. Repent. Stop doing what you're doing, but please come back. We're not the ones who have left them. They're the ones who've left us. Furthermore, to remain in fellowship with a person who is resistant to correction is dangerous to the church and is destructive to our witness. It is ultimately better for the church and for the sinning brother that they are removed. Now, do we miss them? Yes, And I would even add, we are to miss them. Sometimes a 10-year-old church plant, people have come, people have gone. It happens all the time. Most people, they come in, and either this is just not for them and they leave again, or maybe they move to a different town or whatever. Whatever the reasons, people come and go. I mean, this is 21st century. People don't just plant themselves for 55 years and stay in one church. They're transient. And frankly, people are picky so if they don't like the, the color of the lights in this building, they'll go find another building they like. It's just how people were fickle as a culture. But when someone leaves this assembly, our hard attitude should not be, well, got rid of them. Now, we would never admit to that. But I know our sinful hearts. I know my sinful heart. 
And if this is a person who's difficult to get along with, it's our tendency is to be like, well, blessed subtraction. But that's not the heart of Christ. If they really belong to the Lord and they leave, something in our heart should move and stir. Frankly, believers, there are a lot of people that have been with us, some of them for many, many years, people that we've served with, labored with, prayed with, people I've counseled. I, I miss them. I mean, people who have kids that my, friend, my kid, that my kids are friends with. They miss them. So when someone leaves, we shouldn't rejoice. Do we pray for them? Yes. When someone leaves here in sin, pray for them. And now do we proclaim the gospel to them when we do see them? If they've wandered away? Yes. We don't hate them. We love them. And by removing them, we are showing a sinning brother or sister who was resistant to correction we are showing them essentially tough love. That's what this step is. And that's what I've titled the sermon is, by the way, because this is not just about kicking them out. This is essentially tough love for those who have rejected the discipline of the church. Because by removing them, we are effectively delivering them over to the Lord. At this point, our steps are done. There's nothing else that we can do. Now the Lord has to deal with them, who in turn may also deliver them over to their own sins. At that point, the only hope for them is that they might actually be ruined by their own sin and brought to their knees, and only then will they repent. And there are times when that is what happens. That's a sad reality for some believers. They only seem to bow the knee when they're utterly ruined. When there's nothing else to lose. It's like they, they're, they're stuck in their sin, they leave, and the Lord just grinds them down to the ground until they have nothing left, and then they repent, and then they can be restored. Now, you never want that. I never want to see somebody ruined. It breaks my heart, and it should break your heart too. Our hearts should never be, well, they get what, what's coming to them. We did our part and they just rejected, so good for you know, good on them. Never. We should see that kind of a, a life when they've ruined themselves in sin. That should break our hearts because it certainly breaks God's heart. But that is what it takes sometimes to bring a person back. Now, again, you might still be thinking, because I struggle. I've been reading this verse, so you guys get the benefit of only 45 minutes of this. I've been wrestling with this for a week. For weeks and weeks and weeks. This is hard truth, my friends. Nobody wants to come in on Sunday morning and hear about church discipline. But I'll tell you, we need to. I need this. I can't imagine removing somebody from the church. That might be your guttural reaction. I don't like that. That's scary for me. I don't, that's uncomfortable. Well, I want you to show you the, the harsh reality of all of this. Turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want, I want you to see how this plays out in Scripture because we do, we have an example of this whole thing from start to finish in, in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church in Corinth was fraught with problems. They struggled with divisions, they struggled with confusion, disorder, I mean, they were suing each other. I mean, 
the church in Corinth was a, a rough church to be in. And yet, the Lord still calls this a church, and Paul still professes his love for this church. And so there's hope for every church, no matter how troubled they are. But when Paul hears about a particular sinning member, he holds nothing back. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is telling this church, he's telling them what's going on here. He said, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife? You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this, this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you were in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul here is making a case, not of just sin, not against just adultery, He's actually making his argument against incest. This is a case of incest. Now, we know that this man, this sinner, this sinning brother here, is not in a relationship with his biological mother. That's not the kind of incest we're talking about here. He says here, this man is engaged with his father's wife, which means this father, his older father here, is likely remarried and probably to a younger woman. And so now this son sees this younger new wife of his father and goes after her and they get into some kind of a relationship. So not only is this adultery, but this is, by virtue, this is incest. And so Paul, he notes the egregious nature of it. He says, listen, not even the Gentiles do this. You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to clean out the leaven of sin and unrighteousness from within you, and you guys are doing things that even the Gentiles are red in the face about. He says, the church isn't even doing anything. Verse 2, you become arrogant. You you have not mourned instead. Don't you know that you're supposed to be kicking this guy out? Like you should have removed him a long time ago through church discipline. And you haven't, you're just arrogant? Like, oh, well, you know, he's doing his own thing, I'm doing mine, and hey, whatever. Paul says, what's wrong with you guys? What is Paul's solution for this rank and unrepentant sin? He says, get him out. Get him out of the church. He's ruining your witness. Remove him, verse 2. Get rid of this man. Because the church has been completely negligent. Now, I've just spent the last 30 minutes saying, we'll need to go through the process. There's a whole process to this. We don't just kick people out of the church. But Paul is basically saying, you guys missed your chance. You should have done this a long time ago, and you haven't. Now, this is so egregious He's under judgment now. Verse 3, Paul says, For on my part, even though I'm absent from in the body, I'm present with you, I've already judged him. 
In my own mind, through knowing the circumstance, I've already moved through the entire process because there's nothing else to do for this guy. Verse 5, I've already delivered him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. When a man is so entrenched and the church is so negligent, there's nothing else to do but say, you're gone. This man's incestuous sin was destroying the purity of the church and he's destroying their witness. Verse 7, clean out the leaven. That's a, that's a, a metaphor. Purge the sinfulness from among you. This was a severe judgment. This was a radical removal. But he says, eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. Look at what he says in verse 5. He delivers him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's the grinding down. He hopes, he's, he's hoping that the Lord is going to actually do this in a radical way, not because he wants this guy to be punished forever, but he says, so that his spirit may be saved on the last day of Jesus Christ. I want this guy to be kicked out because I care that he actually survives in the end. This is a severe judgment because it's a severe sin. So, did the church actually take Paul's counsel and remove this man? Did they get rid of the sinning brother? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, if you read 2 Corinthians and you read the opening two chapters, you see what Paul writes here, and you can even read between the lines and sort of see what's happening inside the church after receiving that first letter. I can't imagine being the guy that walked into the assembly, hey, we got a letter from Paul today. That first letter was damning. That first letter was hard to read. He goes after every single aspect of their worship service against their practices, against, I mean, they, he just lays them out flat. And yet, they were shocked and sort of rattled by this letter. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 actually makes reference to this letter and scholars have called the chapter, or 1 Corinthians, the severe letter. It was the one that was hard to read. 1 Corinthians would mortify any church. But Paul makes mention not only the letter, but he also mentions this, the sinning brother who was disciplined. 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul continues from a previous verse. He says, but I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. He warns them. He puts them, on, puts them at ease. I'm not coming to you with problems this time. You can breathe easy. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would, have, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you, all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful. I didn't write you that letter to make you guys upset and just to make you upset for no reason. Paul says, I was crying when I wrote that. But that you might know the love which I, especially, which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to do this end also I wrote, 
that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." There's a lot to unpack here, but just to kind of give you the overall here, it's clear from 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul is calling for the removal of the sinning brother, yet verse 6 affirms here that the church actually followed through with it. They actually listened to him, and they removed the guy. They actually confronted him, they kicked him out, they removed him. And based on what we read in verse 7 here, in this chapter, verse 7, the man was devastated and repented in great sorrow. He repented, the Bible says, in excessive sorrow. The church removed him, they punished him, and they reproved him. But now that he's repented, Paul, again, knows the situation. He encourages the church. Verse 6, the punishment they issued was sufficient. He said, what you've done was enough. Verse 7, because of his obvious repentance, they are to forgive him. And then he even tells them, you should comfort him. Forgive him and comfort him. Why? Because he's on the verge of being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. When they, when they went after him, my guess by reading the text, it was ruthless. It was awful. That was not a fun business meeting for that church. And it certainly ruined this guy's life. And not just all of that. Once he repented, he tells them, forgive them, for, uh, forgive him, comfort him, But then verse 8, look at this, look at verse 8. I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Don't just say, you're forgiven, it's fine. Don't just bring him back and say, it'll be okay. He says, I want you to reaffirm, brother, we love you. We love you. We did that because we love you. And now that you've repented, we brought you back. Paul says, bring him back. Tell him he's been forgiven because of Christ. Comfort him in restoration and reaffirm that you love him. Tell him that he's, he belongs here and that you want him back. Because this was such a severe step. It did its job. It drove him to sorrow over sin so that it might be restored back to fellowship again. But this is what it looks like, beloved, when someone is restored back. They, they see the, the error of their ways. They're driven out of the assembly. They repent in sorrow, excessive sorrow. And then not only do you forgive them, you bring them back and you comfort them and you tell them that they're, that they're loved. And you reaffirm Christ's promises to them. And you tell them the Lord Jesus gave his life so that you can be forgiven of this sin. Because, beloved, no sin is beyond forgiveness. Not even that one. And that one seems pretty bad, doesn't it? But not even that one is beyond the forgiveness of Christ. And that is our gospel, isn't it? That's the message that we're saved by, but it's also the message that we're restored and reconciled by, even in our sinfulness during the course of our life. That when you sin, it's the the same gospel. When you commit sins and you're driven to the point of needing forgiveness and repentance, you confess your sins. Lord, 
I sinned against you. I did the wrong thing. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And the gospel tells us that because Christ gave his blood, shed his blood on the cross, our sins are paid for. They're forgiven. All of the debt of sin and transgression has been covered, has been washed over by the blood of Christ. And forgiveness is accomplished. And now we have reconciliation with the Father through the Son by the ministry of the Spirit. We also have reconciliation with one another here. And so now we can be forgiven, we can be comforted, we can be reaffirmed. And now, we don't want to be ignorant of Satan's schemes, now we don't rub our brothers and sisters' old sins in their face anymore. Because that's a scheme of Satan. Well, don't forget, you are disciplined by your church. It's been forgiven. They've been restored. We reaffirmed our love for them. They are a, an accepted, beloved, active member of this church in good standing. And we love them. That's what this looks like, beloved. That's what we want. And so we are not to shy away from church discipline. No, we want to bring people into a reconciled relationship with God and with us. That's our hope, isn't it? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have your word given to us. And Lord, your word is clear. Even though at times it's challenging. Lord, there are times that you call us to be faithful in situations that are difficult. Lord, we never enjoy telling a brother or sister that they're in sin. We never enjoy telling someone who's committing adultery, living with someone they're not married to. We don't enjoy telling someone who's in gossip or slander that they're doing it. We don't enjoy telling someone who's difficult and and abusive to people in their speech or their conduct. We don't enjoy telling a person who's prideful and arrogant that they need to humble themselves. We never enjoy any of these things, Lord. But you tell us, you command us to obey you because we belong to one another and we are your sheep and we are to watch out for each other. And so, Lord, I pray on behalf of your people here, I pray that you would help us not to be fault-finding, troublesome meddlers. Help us not to be mean-spirited and going after each other and pointing out fault left and right. Lord, forgive us for that. But Lord, that we would be diligent to seek one another's good. That if we have brothers and sisters who are caught in transgressions, who are caught in their trespasses or in dwelling sins, that we would love them enough to be honest and go to them in the way that you have commanded us. Lord, because we desire what you desire. We desire a pure church. We desire to see one another growing in godliness. We're not competitive, Lord. We want to see one another excelling still more, as the Bible says. We want to be closer to you. And so, Lord, I pray that these verses would do their job in our hearts, that the Spirit of God would convict us to be obedient. 
Lord, it is by your mercy and by your grace that any of us are saved. We're saved by God's grace through faith alone in Christ. This is not of ourselves. We can't brag about it. So, Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us, and in doing so, that we would have mercy on others and help them. And so, Lord, please accomplish your work in us. Don't stop until we are more like Christ, until the day that we see him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.